everyone and welcome. My name is Susan Bright and I'm the Managing Partner for the UK and Africa at Hogan Bubbles and leader of our Brexit Task Force. This is the eighth webinar in our series, Navigating the Negotiations. Our previous webinar was a bit of a world tour, focusing on the international trade law implications of Brexit, including developments in the WTO and the future prospects for UK-US trade and cross-border supply chains in Europe, as well as case studies from the life sciences and aviation sectors. Today we're here to talk to you all about legislating for Brexit, the UK's upcoming white paper, and what businesses should be thinking about when making contingency plans for a disorderly Brexit. Today I'm joined by a number of members of the Hogan Levels Brexit Task Force. So first, Chris Thomas, who's in our Brussels office and who's an expert on EU law. Then Charles Brasted and Andrew Eaton, both from our public law and policy team. Aileen Dussin, who is a partner in the UK in our international trade practice. Peter Watts, who is our global uh, leader of our commercial law practice. And finally, Alex Harrison, who leads our Brexit issues in the energy sector. So, our agenda for today. We're going to talk about latest developments, then move on to legislating for Brexit, then the Brexit white paper, then a session on Brexit scenario planning, and then a case study on the energy sector. So, latest developments. I'm going to start first um, by looking at a timeline and a reminder of where we are and what comes next. So, after little meaningful progress during the period between March and May this year, there was a flurry of Brexit-related activity last week. The EU Withdrawal Act received Royal Assent on Tuesday and EU leaders met for the latest EU summit on Thursday and Friday. More on those in a moment. What can we expect over the summer period when many of us will be hoping for a trip to some sun, sea and hopefully not so many EU summits to think about? Well, most immediately, the UK Cabinet are due to meet at Chequers this coming Friday to thrash out, we hope, once and for all, what the UK's position is on the final customs arrangement with the EU. The government has said that it aims to announce that outcome in its much delayed and much anticipated Brexit white paper, which they expect to publish early the following week. The chances of that being delayed um, must be high, but later in this webinar, Charles is going to discuss what we're hearing from clients about what they would like to see in the white paper. Following that, the government's trade and customs bills reach their next stage in the legislative process, allowing the House of Commons to have its own say on what those arrangements should be. If the government has not reached a firm and united view for Conservatives to rally around by then, then I think we should expect quite a lot of political intrigue. Next up will be the party conference season, which no doubt will be dominated by the impending deadline for finalising the withdrawal agreement by October. Will the pressure within the Conservative Party at that point force Theresa May to decide between making the compromises necessary to coax the EU into agreement or opting to shift towards a no-deal scenario? Either way, by October, the possibility of no deal will either have disappeared 
if the parties can reach a deal as planned or materially increased. And later in the webinar, Peter's going to take us through the various permutations of how the period between October and March next year could pan out. So first, I'm going to turn to Chris Thomas in Brussels for an update on last week's EU summit. Thanks, Susan. Um, so I think to understand the uh, European Council outcome, uh, one should start by recognizing the place of Brexit in the overall discussions. In the uh, Council conclusions, Brexit accounts for four rather short paragraphs on two-thirds of a page. Other issues are dealt with in conclusions that are over 10 times longer. So the European Council was actually focusing its efforts on migration across the Mediterranean, on the challenges for European defense and security, um, on strengthening the WTO and concerns about protectionism, all of which in the scheme of things, uh, and at least by reference to the uh, amount of words spent in the Council's conclusions, are rather more important than uh, the Brexit negotiations themselves. What, does the, what did the Council say about those negotiations? Well, it, it, made, some, it made the best of the positive case it could. It uh, congratulated the uh, technical negotiators on, on their progress making, uh, on securing agreement on a number of technical provisions. Um, you know, there's one, you know, particularly pending applications for supplementary protection certificates in the United Kingdom on rules for ongoing procurement procedures when we actually get to Brexit date. Um, lots of nice little technical things, um, although they did point out that they had nothing so far on Gibraltar, um, which uh, is, is, is not, not good in terms of the uh, hard Brexit aspect specifically for Gibraltar. But what they then went on to say is to deal with what has become the fundamental issue in the withdrawal agreement, which is, of course, the lack of any agreement or progress in relation to the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. What the, so the words that they are choosing to use are important here because they give an indication of where the EU27 is, I, how, um, how concerned slash firm in their views they are. And they, quotes, expressed their concern that no substantial progress had been reached on making um, agreement on a backstop solution for uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland. They then very pointedly uh, recalled the commitments undertaken by the UK in this respect in December 2017, and that, quote, negotiations can only progress as long as all commitments undertaken so far are respected in full. So just so that everyone understands what that is a reference to, that is a reference to uh, the document that the United Kingdom signed up to in December 2017, that states, the United Kingdom remains committed to protecting North-South cooperation and to its guarantee 
of avoiding a hard border. So the EU27 is insisting that the UK respects its, quotes, guarantee of no hard border. And those were words that the United Kingdom voluntarily choose to commit to. The, uh, unsurprisingly, the next point that the EU27 say is that they are looking for intensified efforts um, so that they can come to a withdrawal uh, agreement in time. Um, they, uh, the, and the words they use, I do think if you look in the middle of the slide here, um, this is, at least for me, somewhat undiplomatic un, um, language asking the United Kingdom to come up with further clarity as well as realistic and workable proposals, uh, implying that nothing so far is either realistic or workable. Um, and that obviously is our major challenge uh, in making any progress at all towards the withdrawal agreement. There was a clear statement that if, quotes, if the UK positions were to involve, the union will be prepared to reconsider its offer. What that is getting at is saying that the EU27's position has always been that they accept the United Kingdom's red lines. And as a function of those red lines, they will offer what they can within the context of the integrity of the EU legal order. So if the, if the United Kingdom were to shift, for example, on accepting greater jurisdiction for the uh, Court of Justice of the EU, then more things might be possible uh, in terms of uh, genuine single market integration. Uh, but they have put the um, uh, the initiative very much back in the hands of the UK government, um, albeit that, uh, and we will all have heard uh, Mr. Tusk's remarks on the news, this reference to this is the last call. Um, there, there, I think there really is some um, frustration and despair at this end in Brussels as to whether a, a real proposal will actually be made uh, within a realistic time frame. Um, but that is where we are. We are no further forward. Thank you, Chris. Um, so let's move on to legislating for Brexit. Um, I'm going to turn first to Charles um, to talk through what an orderly transition might involve. Thank you, Susan. And uh, from Chris's uh, despair and frustration, we move to the uh, sunny uplands of legislative progress in the UK, um, which Andrew is going to talk about. But before we get there, um, let me say a little bit about the legislative task, um, and then we can measure progress against that. Uh, there is a legislative task, both in the UK and almost certainly in the EU, uh, something which Aline will talk about later. Um, but let me start in the UK, uh, where we have seen the most recent developments on the legislative front. The exit of the UK from the EU 
itself requires, of course, no legislation. Uh, Article 50 has done that job for us. We need to take no further steps here in the UK in order to cease to be a member next March. Good or bad news, it is at least clear. But legislation is required for at least three things. The first is to provide continuity for the UK's own legal framework post-Brexit, a legal framework that is currently imbued with EU law in many forms. Part of that continuity will involve uh, considering any immediate policy changes uh, that come with Brexit. Uh, the second legislative task is to give effect to the terms of any withdrawal agreement. And that's because, in the UK at least, because our legal system is dualist in nature, any agreement will have to be implemented into domestic law. I think the position somewhat different in the EU where agreements have essentially direct effect in EU law. Uh, but for the UK, we will need to give domestic legal effect through legislation to any withdrawal agreements that we end up with, including providing for the transitional or implementation period, and including providing for the UK to be treated uh, for domestic purposes as still part of the EU. And the third legislative task for the UK will, of course, be implementing the future relationship. The Withdrawal Act 2018, um, funny to call it that, uh, after so long as a bill, um, and you'll probably remember it in its infancy when it was the Great Repeal Bill, uh, of course, um, how, how times have changed for it. Um, that Act just passed is concerned with the first of these legislative tasks, that is providing for continuity post-Brexit. And that Act, by its nature, is one-sided. It makes no provision for how the UK will be treated by the EU or any of the other 27 member states, because it can't. It is purely domestic legislation. So it cannot of itself provide the complete continuity that the government has committed uh, to securing, and it will require reciprocity of action on the part of the EU for anything other than a simple domestication of existing law with such tweaks as the UK decides to make at that point. And you'll hear much more about those tweaks shortly. So it cannot for itself provide for the transition or the future relationship. That is one part of the current domestic legislative package. Um, and that is what Andrew is going to focus on. Um, its purpose is continuity. It, it will involve tweaking the existing regime so that it works domestically. And how that's done, with what level of scrutiny, and with what limits on those powers, is where the bulk of the controversy has been found, even if that is as a political proxy for other disputes. And it's where a lot of the controversy and complexity will arise in the future. But that is part of the legislative package. Sitting alongside it, there are a number of other pieces of primary legislation that are intended in the UK. And you can put those at the moment broadly into three buckets. 
by reference to the stage they're at, and that tells you something about the nature of what they're trying to do. So there are two bills that have been passed. That's the Nuclear Safeguards Bill and the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Bill. Those are, as one can see just from their titles, absolutely critical pieces of continuity that you would want to have. They've been passed. You've then got, um, currently before Parliament, uh, some important bills that are, in truth, hopefully, dependent upon some sort of deal. And those are the customs and trade bills. And then you have a third category of bills not yet published that one might think of as in the category of domestically politically controversial. Immigration, agriculture, and the good old classic of fisheries. Nothing yet seen on those fronts. Thank you, Charles. So, Andrew, can we turn to you for more of a deep dive into the EU Withdrawal Act? Yes, thanks, Susan. The Act <clears throat> does three main things. It repeals the European Communities Act 1972, thereby ending the supremacy of EU law in the UK. It replicates most of EU law as it stands at the moment of Brexit into domestic law. And finally, it gives temporary powers to the government to enable corrections to be made to the law that would otherwise no longer operate appropriately once the UK leaves the EU. The Act, which runs to just over 100 pages, is widely believed to be the most important for a generation and is likely to be a touchstone for many areas of law and regulation in the UK when EU law ceases to apply. In order to understand the reason why the Act is structured the way it is, we need to first revisit how EU law currently enters into UK law. So the starting point, as Charles said, is that treaties to which the UK as a party cannot alter domestic law unless Parliament incorporates them into domestic law first. The European Communities Act incorporates the EU treaties into UK law. The EU, though, is a unique international organisation because it creates its own body of law that applies directly in the domestic law of its member states. So by becoming a member of the EU, the UK agreed to let EU law permeate through its domestic law and be relied on in its domestic courts by anyone in the UK. The UK courts can, and in some, type, in some cases must, also make references to the Court of Justice of the EU for binding rulings about how EU law applies in the UK. It's important to remember that EU law is not just a list of rules and regulations. It includes parts of the EU treaties themselves, like the fundamental freedoms, as well as the rulings of the Court of Justice and the general principles, such as the principles of non-discrimination and proportionality. As we can see from the picture on the slide, while the UK has been a member of the EU, the European Communities Act has acted as a pipe through which EU law has entered into the UK. It does this either by giving direct legal force to EU law without further domestic laws being needed, or providing a domestic legal basis under which the UK government can adopt secondary legislation to elaborate and give effect to EU law in the UK. This means that if the ECA is repealed and no further action taken, EU law that enters into the UK through the pipe of the, of the ECA would cease to apply, leaving major holes in the statute book. And at the same time, the continued validity of other domestic laws affected by EU law would also be called into question. So as we've said, uh, the Withdrawal Act 
seeks to preserve a snapshot of EU law as it applies immediately before the UK leaves the EU. It does this by creating a new kind of law in the UK with a special status in UK law called retained EU law. Retained EU law comes in two flavours. First, converted retained EU law, which corresponds to EU law that currently applies directly in the UK without further implementation, such as regulations, decisions, rulings of the Court of Justice and certain provisions of the EU treaties. This law is automatically converted into domestic law. Secondly, preserved retained EU law, which corresponds to any domestic legislation already enacted to give effect to EU law in the UK, whose validity might have come into question if nothing was done to secure its continued effect post-Brexit. This is confirmed as valid by the Act. The Act also provides for a detailed set of rules for the interpretation of retained EU law and defines how it interacts with other pre- and post-Brexit laws. For example, pre-Brexit case law of the Court of Justice has the same binding status in the UK as decisions of the UK Supreme Court. This means that, so far as possible, the converted and preserved laws will be given the same meaning by the domestic courts as pre-Brexit, unless and until the Supreme Court says otherwise. The courts will not be bound, by contrast, by any post-Brexit Court of Justice cases, nor will they be allowed to refer cases to the Court of Justice for binding rulings. However, the courts can still refer to things done after Brexit by the CJU or other EU entities so far as they are relevant to any matter before the courts. This will, as you can probably guess, leave a wide discretion to the courts, which could prove controversial. The EU Charter of Fundamental Rights is expressly disapplied post-Brexit, although this is on the basis that the rights contained within it will themselves continue to be part of UK law, irrespective of the Charter. And finally, any rights, liabilities, obligations, restrictions, remedies or procedures recognised and available in the UK by virtue of EU law before Brexit will continue to be recognised and available after Brexit. However, that's subject to one caveat. The Act excludes the possibility of seeking damages against the UK government for breaches of retained EU law post-Brexit something which you can currently do under EU law. So the Act, well, the, the Act also gives the power to government to use secondary legislation to prevent, remedy and mitigate deficiencies in retained EU law arising from the UK's withdrawal from the EU. These are the Henry VIII powers that we've uh, discussed previously. The, Acts, the Act lists a number of ways in which retained EU law may be deficient, including, for example, because it has no practical application, because it confers functions on EU entities that no longer have functions in that respect in the UK, such as URATOM or the European Medicines Agency or the European Aviation Safety Agency, or because it makes provision for reciprocal arrangements between the UK and the EU or other member states that no longer exist or are no longer appropriate. This, of course, may well be affected by what we agree, what the UK and the EU agree in negotiations. The scope of this power is broad because it allows the government to amend any law, including primary legislation, so acts of parliament. This kind of power is known as the Henry VIII power and is controversial because of its relative lack of parliamentary scrutiny, because of the relative lack of parliamentary scrutiny of secondary legislation. In recognition of the exceptional nature of this power, 
It will expire two years after Brexit. The Act also introduces a special parliamentary procedure creating a sifting committee in Parliament who will monitor and the use of the power by government and ensure any major changes are subject to a commensurate level of parliamentary scrutiny. The government estimates that it will need to adopt around 800 to 1,000 statutory instruments to correct retained EU law. A number of illustrative example SIs have already been published and many more are expected in the coming months now the Act has been passed. The words correction and deficiencies suggest that this is a technical exercise of fixing glitches in legislation. There will be a number of places where this is exactly what is needed. However, in other areas, mainly those with a large amount of coordination at an EU level, new frameworks and new functions granted to UK bodies will be needed to replace those at an EU level. This will involve policy decisions and the law is unlikely to remain entirely unaltered in its application. So in short, the process about to be undertaken by the government under the Act is likely to result in a considerable degree of change to the legal and regulatory environment of many businesses. So what should businesses look out for? There are three main potential issues that could arise. First, the scope of the power is likely to come under particular legal scrutiny. With so many SIs needed in such short time and with relatively low amounts of parliamentary scrutiny, mistakes and unintended consequences are likely. In addition, despite the Act's attempt to prescribe a framework for what constitutes a deficiency, the inherent uncertainty introduced by the UK's withdrawal means that ministers will find it difficult to ensure the changes they make to retain EU law do not go beyond that which is reasonably appropriate. Individuals or businesses who feel aggrieved by any changes may wish to challenge the use of the power in the courts. This is likely to require close monitoring by businesses to spot specific concerns. How should businesses go about doing that? The first step is to identify key provisions that matter to your business now and then follow the relevant parliamentary developments. Do not expect to be consulted on all changes. Second, devolution presents an additional challenge. The Act makes special provision for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, which we will not cover in detail in this webinar. But in the immediate term, the Act aims to, retain, to maintain sorry, the current parameters of the devolution settlement and provides that the devolved administrations have broadly the same powers to make corrections subject to the need for the constituent nations of the UK to maintain a common approach post-Brexit, where previously EU law required them to do so. This hints at a broader tussle for control over policy between the UK government and the devolved administrations. This could yet have practical implications for businesses in the medium to long term, as the UK and the devolved administrations will need to decide over time whether to diverge from one another in a given policy area, which could lead to multiple regimes within the UK. Finally, timing. When will the bill come into effect? Exit date is defined in the Act as the 29th of March 2019, unsurprisingly, but this is political. The relevant provisions of the Act do not come into force until the government issues a commencement order bringing them into force. They do not come into force automatically. And the government has also got a power, or maybe in truth a duty, in the Act to change the exit date to take account of the entry into force of the withdrawal agreement. So if the withdrawal agreement is concluded, exit date will probably not be the 29th of March 2019 for the purposes of the Act at least. <clears throat> the Act provides that the withdrawal agreement cannot be ratified 
until a meaningful vote has taken place in the House of Commons and an Act of Parliament has been passed that contains provision for the implementation of the withdrawal agreement into UK law. If this happens, the UK's relationship with the EU during the transitional period will be governed by the withdrawal agreement and the legislation implementing it, which provides, for most intents and purposes, that the UK will be treated as if it is still a member of the EU. So if the negotiations go down to the wire, businesses will not know until the last moment whether the changes brought about by the Act will take effect on March 2019, or whether the transition arrangements will mean that nothing changes until the end of the transitional period. Thank you, Andrew. I'm now going to turn to Aileen to talk to us about legislation for Brexit from the EU side. Thank you, Suzanne. And, and yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's worth bearing in mind that legislating for Brexit is not an e a UK affair only. And, and a number of, of discussions and proposals have been taking place for the past few months in Brussels and in the EU27 capitals. The withdrawal of the UK from the European Union, the so-called Brexit, requires indeed some legislative steps to be adopted in Brussels and the 28 member states to ensure, and I quote the Commission here, to ensure that the future EU27 legal framework is and remains fully operational after the withdrawal. So how does the Commission intend to achieve that? Well, it is in the process of, of discussing and, and, and tabling and, and proposing specific legislative text in the, at Council level uh, in, in Brussels. Uh, but first, I'm sure you would remember, um, uh, like uh, many of my partners here in the table, around the, uh, sitting at the table, that starting end of last year, the EU Commission had started to issue a number of notices to stakeholders. And those notices detailed very uh, precisely and in legal and practical terms the consequences that Brexit will have in a range of policy areas from uh, March 2019 in the absence of any transitional or other preferential agreement. And in those notices, the Commission stated preparing for the withdrawal is not just a matter for EU and national authorities, but also for private parties. Well, in parallel, of course, the Commission is indeed taking on the challenge that withdrawal is also a matter for the EU institutions as well. And it has initiated a number of legislative steps to prepare the EU27 bloc for a so-called disorderly Brexit or a no-deal scenario, either starting from March, end of March 2019, i.e. if there is no transition, or after the agreed transition period. And the proposals cover a wide range of areas, as shown in, in that slide that you can see in front of you, uh, and that is an extract from uh, the Commission website itself. They are very specific at this stage, limited to a number of sectors and areas, and targeted at re remedying the negative impact of a disorderly withdrawal or enabling the necessary adaptation of the, the legislation. You will, I'm sure, you remember that at the end of last year, of course, the first uh, proposals that were discussed, voted on, and adopted were the relocation seat of a number of EU agencies that currently have their seat in London. Uh, those uh, legislative proposals have been uh, adopted and finalized, and of course, the 
um, process for relocation uh, will uh, be underway as soon as further uh, visibility on the date of, of uh, withdrawals arrives. But setting those two specific relocation proposals aside, there are a number of sector-specific proposals that the EU has currently adopted as part of its legislative agenda. And, and at our last webinar, for those of who, who could attend, you remember that we talked about the tariff red quotas proposal, uh, TRQs that currently govern the imports of certain agricultural products into the EU. Well, a few days ago, the Council of the EU um, uh, formally authorized the Commission to open formal negotiations within the World Trade Organization in Geneva on how to divide up existing EU tariff rate quotas between the EU27 from one side and the UK. Those negotiations are now finally officially underway in Geneva, but they need to be completed within a very tight time frame. And in case of a no-deal scenario, those time, this time frame will end on March 2019, end of March 2019. And for that specific reason, the proposal uh, the Commission has in parallel in this specific TRQ sector table a separate proposal in case of um, a no-deal scenario uh, before um, the end no deal, i.e., sorry, a WTO no deal scenario in the context of a no deal scenario, if you follow me <laughs> still so far. So in order to take into account of the situation where agreements with relevant WTO members are not concluded before March 2019, the Commission has allowed the EU 27 to proceed unilaterally with the apportionment of the TRQs and to amend all the relevant EU provisions accordingly. That proposal will of course only impact and will only be valid in the EU27 bloc. So we would expect the UK to be in parallel looking at its own set of uh, proposals uh, as part of uh, the EU withdrawal business discussions. Another sector that has uh, been uh, under uh, very sort of um, uh, has been the focus of a lot of attention in in Europe, but also in the UK, is this latest proposal on internal market type approval, which I'm sure you will have seen was published on the 4th of June 2018. And in that proposal, the Commission has um, uh, is basically taking steps to allow. Um, uh, the modification of existing EU rules to allow manufacturers of vehicles to obtain new approvals from the EU member states to replace their existing UK type approvals. Under the current EU legal framework, as you know, manufacturers have at the moment a choice of uh, the EU member state authorities from which they request these type approvals. And once this approval is granted, they can basically place the product on the, on the UK market and under EU uh, free movement of goods uh, have uh, that specific product circulating throughout the EU 28 market. Well, the withdrawal of the UK from the EU in absence of any deal or any mutual recognition agreement will mean that manufacturers will no longer be permitted to rely on certificates of type approval issued by the UK authorities 
to access the EU market. Uh, but worth bearing in mind at this stage that this is also the case uh, for EU approvals in the UK market. And, and on that specific aspect, the UK will also have to look at its own set of, of legislation on uh, EU-type uh, approvals in the UK. So, um, consequently, manufacturers who obtained approvals in the UK or who are obtaining approvals in the UK as we speak uh, will need to obtain, in the absence of a deal, uh, new approvals effective immediately upon Brexit from the competent authorities of the 27 EU member states. And this specific legislative uh, proposal is um, discussed and will be adopted to allow uh, manufacturers to, to do so. But those on this table, um, as, as, uh, as uh, put by uh, the President of the Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, in Ireland uh, last week, uh, is just an illustrative example of what the Commission is currently looking at in terms of uh, preparing itself for Brexit. We expect the Commission to adopt similar initiatives in other uh, EU-type uh, legislation, uh, legislative mechanisms. And additionally, we would also uh, expect the UK government to uh, uh, take a similar sort of uh, parallel approach for the UK uh, domestic uh, approvals uh, situation. Ellen, thank you. So now we're going to move on to the Brexit white paper. So Charles, um, can you help us? Um, what are clients telling us about what they'd like to see in that white paper? Uh, thanks, Susan. Conscious of the time um, and that we will come back to this, I'm going to uh, answer that if I can in, in, in bullet point form, as it were. Um, what we, of course, know is that, uh, that A, that uh, this is a white paper about the future relationship, and we know that uh, that is a far-off thing when we're all focused on withdrawal and transition at the moment. Uh, but why does that matter right now? Well, Chris alluded, uh, made very clear one point about that at the moment. Uh, we know uh, that one of the big issues on the table is, is customs arrangements. Uh, by necessary implication, what that really means is equally Northern Ireland and that border. Uh, and we know there is a proposal Mark III, although um, we don't know what it is. Uh, and that, whether that is a... Um, uh, to use Chris's words, what were they? Realistic and workable. That has to be a realistic and workable proposal for any of this other stuff to move forward. Um, so that's one reason why this future relationship discussion matters now. Um, it also matters because many people, including you, will say that transition cannot be a gangplank to nowhere. You need to know where you're going. That's a political point, but it's also built into the structure of Article 50 that requires a withdrawal agreement to have regard to the framework for a future relationship. That's why it matters now. So we ask businesses, what, what do you want to see in that white paper? And we looked across sectors, but what is striking, and therefore I can deal with it quickly, is the consistency. If you look at goods, what do you hear? You hear, we don't want new tariffs. We want seamless border checks one way or another. We want regulatory alignment on product requirements. And we want continued UK involvement in uh, setting those standards, and we want mutual recognition of approvals. It's looking like a pretty ambitious shopping list already. Services, what do we want? We want continued access, mutual recognition, regulator participation. 
on data, what do we want? Freedom of movement of data and the recognition and role for the ICO in the EU processes. Ditto if you talk about open skies. Ditto if you talk about state aid and public procurement. And if you talk about dispute resolution, what do we want to see? Enforceability of rights against states and sensible working arrangements for the enforceability of judgments across borders. What does that really tell me? It tells me that what businesses are asking for now doesn't sound at all different to what they were saying they wanted two years ago. What has changed is the gap between that, what the UK government is or is not saying, and the very clear messages still coming out from the EU uh, about no bespoke deal being available and with the UK having to bear the consequences of the red lines it has chosen. The other thing that I get out of it is that what businesses are saying above all, from what we've heard, and this is anecdotal, is we're looking for clarity. The outcomes that we get that are clear may not be good outcomes, but we're looking for clarity. And if government won't provide it, and won't provide it soon, then businesses make their own clarity by making their own decisions about what their future looks like. Thank you, Charles. And with that background, I'm going to move on to Peter to talk to us about Brexit scenario planning, potential outcomes, and what businesses should be doing and when. Peter. So far, we've touched on some of the strands of activity underway. I'm just going to draw, try to draw one or two of those strands together. And I'm going to focus particularly on the short to medium term. That's not to underestimate the importance of the ultimate destination, but for business, it's always been the case that the journey is at least as challenging and important as the destination itself. On the next slide, we've laid out some possible scenarios. And to examine the short to medium term, I'm going to focus uh, in the next five minutes, particularly on the top two alternatives to assess their potential impact, likelihood, and preparations businesses should be considering. In each of these two scenarios, uh, we'd see political impasse resulting in no transitional agreement being signed before March next year. And I'd reiterate, as Chris said, although uh, everyone's hopeful and both sides have declared an intention to avoid this, there are a number of stumbling blocks, most notably the conversations about Northern Ireland, but also whether an agreement can be reached at least in outline on the future relationship. And one can merely observe factually that we're now over two years since the original referendum result Without agreeing any of this, it must mean that there is at least some risk that no such agreement will be signed in the, next, in the remaining months, so we can't dismiss it. So what are the risks if there is no transitional agreement? Well, in the worst case, what we've called here a crash landing, uh, we'd find neither the UK nor the EU actually managing to put in place any adequate legal preparations for the UK's exit. And in that scenario, the consequences could be extremely challenging on both sides of the new border could literally overnight become illegal to use in France products and products manufactured in the UK and the reverse the same. And in the real world, even the existence of a question like that could prove massively disruptive. One only has to think about, say, a busy hospital doctor who finds herself needing to get legal advice uh, before knowing whether to administer a medicine and then multiply that problem across hundreds of hospitals to realise the potential for chaos is high. Now, the team so far have already talked about some of the solutions in place to fix that problem. As Andrew and Charles have told you, the withdrawal bill contains a core provision which could be used effectively to transpose EU law into UK law in the absence of a withdrawal agreement. 
and that on the UK side of the border would go a considerable way to softening the worst impacts of an untransitioned exit. But the very existence of powers to correct so-called deficiencies in EU retained law illustrates exactly that there are shortcomings if we have to end up relying in, in a short order entirely on a generic transposition. Put simply, some laws businesses currently rely on simply won't work as intended or as they currently do if they're just transposed without amendment. And on the flip side, we've heard about further changes, similar changes needing to be made on the EU side of the fence and the EU starting to put in place preparations, but again, coming up in short order with a universally effective uh, solution to be consistent across every member state in the manner that people think it should operate and as is consistent with now and businesses' expectations is far from simple. So, in the UK at least, and certainly in the EU, groundwork has been done to prepare for this scenario. And uh, as uh, Andrew mentioned, the relevant provisions of the Withdrawal Act are not yet in force, requiring a further political decision by a minister, something which, given the complexities of Brexit politics, we can't yet say are inevitable. So, whether the preparations will be sufficient to provide a genuine parachute to cushion a potential crash landing on both sides of the border remains uncertain. What's clear is that, as we speak, whilst not necessarily likely, there's a non-negligible risk of a very bumpy landing at the very least. So what should businesses be doing? In some cases where there are very specific risks, companies have already started to implement their Brexit action plans. But in our experience, most businesses have so far held off taking that step in expectation that the transition is likely to be orderly and seeking to avoid wasting money on futile efforts to anticipate what might happen. Clearly, it's always going to be better to try to understand the destination by start, before starting on the journey. Now, that's a very sensible approach, and there's a good argument that that remains appropriate right now for businesses that have taken that view. But that comment comes with a very strong note of caution as well. By the time the fate of the transition deal and the potential political fallout become clearer, it's likely there will only be four months to go to Brexit, and that'll include the Christmas holiday period. Now, the chances of a political failure may be relatively small, but they're real. And if they materialise, every business will be scrabbling to act. That would mean not only trying to mobilise internal resources, but also external resources who might help you to react qu quickly. And I don't just mean law firms, I mean accountants who would identify the indirect impacts on your tax arrangements, or IT consultants who you would need to help reconfigure systems to reflect new business patterns, we under incredibly intensive demand. So it's vital businesses are at least prepared for the eventuality, that they understand well their areas of risk and have a contingency plan in, in place, including thinking about what help they might need. In short, by November it will be too late to start planning. You need to be ready to act then, which means doing your planning now. So if you haven't already, you should make sure you've assessed carefully the potential areas of your business which will be most impacted by these hard landing scenarios and understand which impacts you'd need, potentially need to move quickly to address. In addition, as Charles has mentioned, the publication of the UK White Paper will effectively open a window to influence London, Brussels and the capitals of individual member states on the direction of travel both for a long-term deal 
and potentially the way the transitional arrangements would take us there. It's inevitable that a small number of high-profile issues will hit the headlines, but as always with Brexit, the devil will also be in the detail. You need to be ready, almost certainly, over the next two to three weeks to rapidly assess the white paper and to identify practical and realistic solutions, suggestions that might help, help deliver a sensible long-term outcome. And as the aliens already said, you should also be thinking about the EU's preparations for a no-deal outcome. What would they mean for you, and do you need to influence them? And finally, as Andrew said, in the UK, we'll start to see a flow of draft instruments addressing potential issues in the transposition of EU laws into UK law. You shouldn't just focus simply on those that come out and are impacting you, but also areas where you perceive there are deficiencies which will require to be addressed. Brexit is a subject which, one way or another, I fear will occupy us for many years to come. By now, many have Brexit fatigue, and it's indeed vital to keep it in, in proportion and not throw too many resources at a moving target. But we're genuinely approaching some key, key trigger points, and businesses which use the period between now and September wisely are likely to see rewards. Thank you, Peter. And we're going to finish with a spotlight or case study on the energy sector. So turning it over to Alex Harrison. Alex. Thank you, Susan. And given the increased speculation on the potential for a crash landing scenario, I'm going to focus on what might happen uh, in the UK if we do crash out of the EU without uh, a deal, and particularly on the gas and electricity consequences of that. And just to set the scene and give some context to what I'm going to say, just some numbers that give some sort of scale to the the level of flows of gas and electricity between the UK and the EU 27. So between ourselves, we spend about 6 billion euros a year flowing gas and power uh, between the UK and the EU 27. Predominantly, that's made up of gas. About 80% of all trade uh, is in relation to natural gas. Um, we do import gas um, from the EU, about 10% of all gas that the UK consumes, but we're much greater importers of gas from places like Norway and LNG from places like Qatar. So in practice, we're not particularly dependent on the UK, uh, on the EU27 um, for gas. We're more dependent on the EU27 for electricity. At the moment, we, we buy about 7.5% of the power we consume, and um, the government policy at the moment is to increase the amount of electrical interconnections so that we might be in a situation where 25 or more percent of our total consumption is sourced or planned to be sourced from the EU27. So there's a, there's a dependency there. On the export side, um, we export a lot of gas to Ireland. So about 50% of, 56% of all the gas that the Irish consume is sourced via the UK market. So there is a particular issue um, in Ireland in relation to gas and its dependency on the UK for gas. Um, and we also export some electricity to France, Ireland, and the Netherlands when the interconnections are flowing the other way. But the um, prices in the relative markets tend to mean that we're importing electricity rather than exporting it. The, the other aspect that's out there is that London has a leading role in both in, in electricity, gas, coal, oil, and emission rights trading in Europe. And so one of the big questions is what might happen to that role um, in a crash landing Brexit scenario. So what do I think is going to happen? In terms of what happens at a legislative um, level, 
all the EU's rules in the field of energy market regulation would cease to apply if we crashed out of the EU without some form of transition or other arrangement that allowed us to continue on that basis. That means in terms of the physical interconnection that we have for gas and electricity, that the rules and the platforms that exist to allow for the trading of, of electricity and power um, across those interconnectors would cease to apply. So we wouldn't be able to participate in capacity allocation, in balancing services, or in market coupling. And the expectation, I think, is that um, that interconnection will remain, and that um, the, the, the interconnectors are not going to be taken away or, um, or switched off, but that trading through them will become significantly less efficient. There will be much more friction in that trading, which will have cost implications for the UK, and I'll come on and say something about that in a second. And another aspect is that um, guarantees of renewable origin, i.e. certificates that evidence the renewable origin of a particular piece of electricity generation, at the moment there's mutual recognition in relation to those certificates across the EU. Certificates in the UK will cease to be um, recognised and of value to players in the E27 if we crash out of the European Union. And, and finally, we will need to agree some form of new safeguarding regime in relation to Euratom uh, almost immediately following a crash landing because without the Euratom um, rules in place, our ability to move nuclear material cross borders um, from the EU to the UK as a third country will cease to apply and that will put a jeopardy uh, both nuclear power generation but also the medical uses of nuclear materials that are currently employed in hospitals and so on. So my big question is, um, will the lights go out? Will we be checking our meters using candles as I've kind of shown on the graphic? I think the answer to that is, is almost certainly no. Um, that isn't to say that um, balancing the network and making sure that the lights stay on won't become more difficult, because almost certainly it will do. But I think National Grid, as the operator of the UK electricity system, has enough um, tools in its toolkit to be able to continue to balance the network. What it means is that they will have to manage demand down more actively and try to manage supply up. That's likely to increase the cost of power um, overall at a time when um, our energy bills are politically sensitive in the UK. And it's also likely to increase the volatility of electricity prices on a day-for-day -day basis, which again may have political downsides. We may feel that in order to counter that, we need to invest in some new generation in order that we reduce the dependency that we've previously had on interconnection if it proves that we can't source power efficiently through the interconnectors. But I think that tends to have a long lead time attached to it and there isn't time to do much about that now in advance of March next year. Will we bounce out of the internal energy market? Yes, we will on a crash landing, absolutely so. But as I mentioned a moment ago, that doesn't necessarily mean that all flows of power and gas will cease um, via the interconnectors. In fact, the rules on both sides ought to be um, aligned at least at the point of exit, certainly would be so if we brought into effect the withdrawal bill uh, which would import um, EU law into UK law at the point of exit. And so uh, there is at least the physical means to continue to flow power, whether there is political will to do so or whether this would become part of a pawn in a wider game remains to be seen. One area that we would have greater flexibility on a crash landing is decarbonisation whether or not the UK would continue to remain as committed to decarbonising its 
um, transport, heat, and electricity at the rate that the EU currently sets for its member states. And I think there's a political option there. That really hasn't been a make weight in any of the political discussions to date. But you could see a scenario in which, again, in order to keep bills down, decarbonisation fell further and further from a priority on the political agenda because it's likely to increase cost overall. Um, and to the extent we are allowed um, access to the um, EU um, internal energy market post a crash landing, it's likely that we would do so on a rule taker basis and that we would have no option um, in relation to that and we'd have no observer status on the key energy bodies such as ACER and ENSOE and G which allows at the moment to be influential in the evolution of um, EU energy policy. On the tariff side, um, most commentators are not expecting any tariffs to be applied on the flows of gas or electricity, but I think there is an expectation that if you're importing components into the UK from the EU in order to build new assets, so if you're importing solar panels or uh, turbines for wind farms and the like, that those may well be subject to tariffs in accordance with WTO rules. And in terms of London's place as a leading energy trading centre, I think we'd have to see, but it's likely on a crash landing scenario that many of the businesses that conduct um, trading between the UK and the EU27 at the moment may find that they don't have the requisite authorisations to continue to trade in energy commodities uh, post a crash landing, and that will mean a scramble to find new authorisations or to relocate to places that allow continuity of business. That's it from me. Thank you very much, Alex. So just to finish up, um, a reminder of the Hogan Lovell's Brexit resources. So for further help and guidance, please visit our dedicated hub at hoganlevels.com forward slash Brexit. You can sign up to our Brexit bulletin emails by using the button at the bottom of the page. We'll be holding further webinars in this series, so please look out for further communications. And this particular webinar will also be available very shortly as a podcast. Finally, as always, if you want to discuss how Brexit impacts your own business and how you can best prepare, then please get in touch with us. Contact a member of the um, Brexit Task Force or email brexit at hoganlovels.com. So thank you, Chris, Charles, Andrew, Aileen, Peter, and Alex for joining me today. Um, and thank you to all of you for listening. Do join us next time.